Hello, how you doing? I'm Craig Parkinson. You are listening to the Two Shot Podcast. Sit yourself down, pop the kettle on. We're going to have a nice old chat. Who's it with this week? I'm going to tell you right now. How the devil are you? Yes, it is Thursday. It is the podcast and you are here. I'm so pleased you are. Thank you so much for subscribing and downloading. How was your week? Huh? Good? If you're a parent, you're probably thinking, Craig, yeah, it's, it's a bit better now because they're back at school. And I understand that. But I'm looking out the window. The trees are rustling. The birds are being blown around. It's chucking it down with rain. The skies are great. It's a bit miserable, isn't it? But look... This is your time now, so whatever you're doing, if you're putting your feet up, you're jumping on the treadmill, you know, you're on your commute, just turn it up a little bit and have this time to yourself. Because this week we head back to London and we have a part two with the wonderful Andy Nyman. And yeah, there's times when this gets quite industry and I know that we have got hundreds of listeners, a thousand listeners who... Uh, nothing to do with uh, the arts in any way, but I still think you're going to enjoy this. We talk so much about positivity and, you know, writing a play and taking that play from stage to screen, but there's one little snag, and this happens very, very rarely because we're human and we all make mistakes. The first 20, 25 minutes of this conversation, for some reason, didn't record. We, we don't know why, um, so you pick it up sort of 20 minutes in where I was talking to Andy about sustaining a character that he did for a year on stage because I've never done that and I kind of find it, I kind of, well, I don't kind of, I do, I find it really fascinating how he could sustain that night after night, year after year, sometimes twice a day, especially um, when certain things in our personal lives on going to plan but you still have to go and do your job so that's why we pick this up so let's head now to hammersmith and go around andy nyman's house this is episode 115 of the two shot podcast and we go back to meet the brilliant mr andy nyman take care and i shall see you at the end i almost i dried in the opening of the show, because just my head was just I can't begin spinning, to imagine, spinning. Mm. You know, I'd literally found out at eleven o'clock that morning, and then at half two I'm doing a matinee. Yeah, and uh, so you know, I dried, not massive, just weird. You know, it feels like an hour. It's, it's been half yeah, a second. It's something that you would know and nobody yeah. else would know about. And then I sort of pulled myself round from that, and then, and then just sort of okay. But, but I think that's one of the things about life is that, you know, it just suddenly made you see the script so much of it in a whole new way. Yeah. Never to turn this around on me. The amount of times I've said this on this podcast. <laughs> But like, la- there was times last year for me, 
when I was going through particularly <laughs> like sort of difficult personal times, and we'd had episodes booked in, and obviously I never want to let people down because it's really difficult. Yeah, booking venues and booking guests and in whatever they do. And I really didn't feel up to talking mm. to someone about their life. Do you know what I mean? When there's certain things going on in yours that's a bit like a tornado and yeah. you can't really ground yourself. But it was the best thing I ever did. Yeah. Because for those few hours, I completely switched off what was going on with me. And you also... N- Sorry, go on. No, no, no. But, but to throw the spotlight on somebody else, I know it's, it's, it's slightly different, but there is a link to you it. You also don't know what you're going to discover that can help you. True. Or heal you. Absolutely. Or or just be a revelation to you. Mm. Um, so, it, yeah. But it's about engaging in conversation, you know. Yeah. And I'm just I'm just reaching for my bag. It's not great for a podcast, is it? It is. It's fine. all right. So I've, I was it's an impressive that, bag. It's a massive bag. It's because it's so full of shit. Right. Not shit, but... So I was reading about... A book that I had to order. It's called this about reclaiming conversation. Yeah. The power of talk in a digital age, which I'm yet to dive into. But um, I think it's going to be really, really interesting, not just to because of doing what I do, yeah. but I think for everybody. Yeah. About talking more. Anyway, I'll put a picture of this up. Take a picture of that, Beth. There you go. Done it. Did you really take a photo then? Oh, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and you just now, made the noise. Speaking of books. Yes. And speaking of the fact of your... And I do say it as positivity. What made you put all these thoughts down in your first book? Not to mention your second one. Why? What? What? Was there something in you that went, well, you know what, I'm going to put all this down in a book? Well, I never, ever thought I'm going to put it down in a book. I thought... um, I I used to carry a little book, and there it is, on my shelf. I used to carry this in in my bag all the time. Go on. So cheesy. Go for the gold. Go for the gold. <laughs> it is but actually called Go for the Gold. It is called Go for the Gold. And it's just a little quota page pocketbook thing. Yeah. And I just ended up folding down pages. Look at that first thing. Plunge boldly into the thick of life, Goethe. Life's either a daring adventure or nothing, Helen Keller. I mean, just it's just full of... Anything and everything. Just yeah. one little page quote. And I used to carry this. And I absolutely loved it. It was always in my bag. And then... I'd heard, and it's actually here. I've written it here. It was I'd heard someone say this quote, and I thought, oh, my God, that is amazing. And it was something I'd put in the first book, which is this George Burns quote, which is, I'd rather be a failure at something I love than a success at something I hate. And I thought, oh, my God, that's exactly how I feel. Mm. That's what the journey is. That's what I feel. So I scribbled it in here, in the front cover, which felt a bit sacrilegious. But then it suddenly felt like, ooh... God, that's really handy, actually, writing writing it down. And then something happened either in an audition or... And I wrote that down. And then I started, I, I for me, only for me, because I'm so... I still cannot believe I'm an actor and I make my living doing that and I've made my living and I, I just can't believe I'm 33 years into doing it. 
I think you say as much, like, in the book, certainly. I do. I I feel so like it's not me. So writing those things down, the minute you write something down, um, it, it sort of goes away from you. It becomes a real thing other than your thought. It's a concrete thing. So I, I used to scribble all these thoughts and little bullet points down that were only for me. And then after about five years, I had all these A4 sheets stapled in my bag. Wow. And I just used to carry it. And I used to love it because it used to feel like I'm an actor. These are all my little things, that advice, tips, life tips to myself that I, as an actor, am amassing. That's just so exciting. And then it was Jeremy Dyson who, because I used to put pictures with these things as well to anchor yeah. the ideas. And it was Jeremy saw it and said, oh, you'd probably get that published, wouldn't you? And I was like, oh, God, I don't know. No, who's going to publish that? And he, so he said, oh, speak to your agent or see if they can. So I ended up, it got sent to Nick Hearn Books and Oberon Books. I think Oberon, I think. And Nick Herm were the first to reply, and there's a thing on the front of the... Uh, <laughs> when I knew it was going to be... Well, for me, I was packaging it now as a book. There's a f- sort of flash fake sticker on the front that says, over one million <laughs> copies sold. There's a little asterisk, and it says underneath, completely untrue, but you have to like you have to stand out from the crowd like this book. Well, they hadn't read the asterisk. <laughs> <laughs> And I hear it a lot from people. I think, fucking hell, it sold over a million copies. I'm like, it ain't. You know, read it. Read the cover. Anyway, they thought it was like an American bestseller. So when they met me, it's literally rather like the Lyric Hammersmith. It is the other end of this road. Where is it? Unbelievable. It is literally the bottom of the road. Yeah, Shepherd's Bush. Just wow. So I'd gone in and, uh, but I had a very clear idea about what the book was. I saw it was literally that my version of that. Yeah. I said, look, I want it to be... Actually, it's my version of another absolutely incredible book. I'm just going and getting for you. Except I'm not looking tall enough to reach it without. And he's just walking to his bookshelf and he's successfully... Oh, got... It's not how good you are, it's how good you want to be. By Paul Arden. But here's the brilliant thing. Look at that cover. I... Picked that up because it's called, it's not how good you are, it's how good you want to be, the world's best-selling book by Paul Arden. <laughs> Except it isn't, it's the world's best-selling book by Paul Arden, which is amazing, <laughs> the chutzpah of it. So that's, it was <clears throat> my version of what this, and I cannot recommend this book enough, it's just an entertaining, brilliant, sideways thinking. But that's, that. when I bought that, this going back years, was a five, I think. It still sells and it's probably, I don't know what. But that was my thing. I'd gone in and said I want it to be a pocketbook. I want it to be like six quid so actors can afford it. I want, I just want everyone to be able to, chances are I'm not going to make money out of it, but I just want people to, I just want to try and share some of the stuff that I've learned yeah. and spare. But also I'm so obsessed with it. And I couldn't find any books like that. Well, there isn't. About being just practical, real world. You know, there are a million books about process and technique and, and lot, you know, lots of them are bollocks and lots of them are useful and lots of them you've got to sift through them and think, oh, that works for me and that does And lots of them are pretentious. Yeah, but there was nothing that was like, oh, just some proper pragmatic down-to-earth stuff. I'm um, 
mentoring this uh, young lad, George, who just graduated from Central. Brilliant. And I was talking to him at Christmas, and he, I said, oh, so what are you doing? He said, oh, I'm going to go back home for Christmas. I'm, you know, just, I'm feeling a bit, oh, I just want to go home. I said, well, that's good. Go home and recharge your batteries, and that's grand. Uh, he said, but I think, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to buy uh, Andy Nyman's books for Christmas. I said, oh, oh yeah. Okay, all right. And immediately that day, I went out and bought both your books and then sent them oh. up north. And he was, oh, I was so pleased because that's what he wanted. I thought, well, while you're away, if you're not having the best time and you can recharge your batteries at home, but maybe you need a little bit yeah. of well, it's inspiration. Also, that's why I love the pod. That's why I love this podcast because it reminds you that you're not alone. You know that. The struggle is universal at whatever level you're at. The demons are universal. Yeah. The amount of bollocks that's talked is universal. True. You know, and, and it's just, so there's real comfort in that. So you know what what you've done is it's profound for us. It is a massive thing. It's not an accident that it's been so embraced. It's had a profound impact, I think, on you know. And I know you've spread it out a bit more. It, so, so it goes to not just actors and stuff, mm. you know. But to hear actors talk honestly about the life of it and the struggle of it, and without it being doom and gloom, and to hear everyone's different ways in and different stories, it's just staggering. It's so interesting that this is the only podcast in over a hundred and... I don't know when this is going to go out, let's say over 115 episodes that we've done over the years that we've really only talked about work. So yeah. for me, even though I'm, I was always very reluctant to talk about it, because of your second one, second, I, second episode, Oh yeah, I really wanted to talk about I'm it. I'm filled with imposter syndrome about doing another episode, though. Of doing this with you, me totally. and you? Yeah, really? totally. I mean, I'm, de- I'm honoured and delighted yeah. you asked, but I sort of feel like, oh, God, what have I got to offer? It's probably just... No, but I think it's... Because I, I, I was going to say, because I've been reluctant to talk about jobs with actors, because we don't want... I don't yeah. really want to talk about it. But there's something really... Because I knew that I wanted to talk about how do we sustain yes. that. And I wanted to briefly touch on the book, which we've done. Yeah. But what I really wanted to talk about is writing a play. Yes. And then it was very well received... Yeah. And then transferring it to screen, yeah, which is also really well received. And yes. because so many people I talk to nowadays, and not just actors, are going, Do you know what? I'm creating my own work mm. and I'm going to get this done, I'm going to get this made, and I don't care what the budget is, I'm going to do it. Yeah. And I'm, you know what? I might have to do it on my fucking phone because yeah. we can do that now. So it's all there. Yeah. I mean, treat yourself, read about how Stallone dealt with the whole Rocky getting made. The story of that is the most inspiring, <laughs> amazing, yeah. irrespective of what you think of him as a writer, actor, director. I think it's a fucking you know, great film. Oh, it's amazing, you know, and I don't say that like out of snobbery. I, th- I love him. <laughs> but the story of that was always a massive inspiration to me. Yeah. So... Um, so Jeremy and I wrote ghost stories. Jeremy Dyson and I had been best friends since we were 15. We met when we were at a Jewish summer camp. And we'd always loved horror films, and we just sort of had this idea of, wouldn't it be great fun to work together? And we'd always said it. And then 
I which can be hard when you're such good really when you're such hard. good friends it's a because risk. it becomes a different relationship. Totally, it's a risk because you're jeopardising your friendship. Yeah, but you know we'd both had very long collaborations with successfully with other people. Me with Darren Brown and him with the League of Gents. Mm. You know, so we'd sort of we were aware that equally a collaboration when it works is the most amazing, joyous, successful thing. And it's not babyish, you know, you just know that it can be hard. It's like any relationship. You know, there are moments when you put each other's noses out of joint and... Sometimes you back down and then, yeah, you know, yeah. it's give and take. Yeah. And um, so, I mean, it's a big old, long old story, but we basically wrote... I had the sort of initial idea of what ghost stories should be. And it was born out of... That's Griff's knees. knees. Producer Griff sat down (laughs) on the chair from the film Emmanuel, which is basically Producer Griff on an orange sex chair. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he looks good in it. Don't even think about editing that out, Griff. Yeah. And um, so I'd had this idea, which I went to Jeremy and said, this is what I think it is, and he was loved the idea. And it happened to come at a very, just the perfect moment for both of us. But it was a, it was a, in your mind's eye. It was a theatre production, wasn't it? One hundred percent. Yeah, absolutely. and it was all the things we loved about horror films mm. on stage. Yeah, and there were a few things that were part and parcel of it. That's Griff standing. <laughs> uh, a few things that were part and parcel of it, and one of them was, you know, it felt like the commercial constraints were actually a help, not a hindrance. So when it, thi- it, it, well, in sorry, thinking about it, yeah. You know, I'd sort of said, <coughs> excuse me, I said to Jez, look, here's the idea, which was three men. It was basically, I'd been to see the vagina monologues, which I kind of not really enjoyed, and sat watching this thing, watching three women on stools reading. I thought, this thing's all over the world. There's no set. This is an amazing business model because this thing's a massive success mm. and the, the overheads are tiny. So someone's making some good money on this. So I thought, that's a really interesting idea. And about the same time, I'd gone past The Woman in Black, which I loved. I don't know what else. That was one of the first plays I ever oh, saw when I was 15. Amazing. When I came to London. Amazing piece of theatre. Is it still going? Still going, 30 my years on. Yeah. God. That was my first telly job, was The Woman in Black. Was it? Yeah. There's my little card up there, the cast and crew screening. Oh, there we go. Central films. Yeah, it was my first telly job, me and Steve McIntosh. In that, so going back to Wanderlust, though. There you go. Um, So, um, and I thought it's so mad there isn't another ghost scary play on. Um, It's like saying you can't have another show with songs in it because Lemiz is on. It's mad. Doesn't make sense. So I phoned Jeremy and said, "Look, I've got this idea, which is basically the vagina monologues with ghost stories. Three men sitting on three stools telling ghost stories, and then we'll have some big jumps in it." He was like, I love that, that's great. Well, that's not what it became, of course. It grew and morphed. But that was the kernel of it. And, and, and it was a two-prong attack, really. One was it was our chance to write a modern... Because why would you write a, another old-fashioned ghost story? Because you can only be not as good as The Woman in Black. True. Which is brilliant. And we don't, you just don't want... You're going to be compared to it anyway. So do anything you can to be different from it. So we were utter, you know, totally contemporary. And... 
But also the idea was to have small cast so you can tour it and hopefully make some money out of it. Were you already thinking that far ahead well, at that, the start? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't like when our play's a massive hit, but it was what can we put in place that can help its success? Well, not being expensive is one of those. Not having a cast of 30. Not having a, yeah, yeah, not having a cast of 30, not having a this, not having a that. And then we just basically wrote the play we wanted to see when we were 15, so which you didn't, is the same as now. You didn't go to anybody first and go, we've got this idea. No. So what had happened was I hadn't done a play for 10 years. Right. And then I'd gone back and done a play. At, um, I'd taken 10 years out of it. And the reason I'm asking that, because I want people to hear who are, li- who are listening... Who are thinking that, about, thinking about, about to do. Writing a play. You know, well, look, you just went is, and did it. Yeah. I mean, everything fell into place with great ease in a, in a way that it shouldn't and probably doesn't very often. But as we know, everything is about timing yes. pretty much. So I had gone and done a play and Sean Holmes was directing that play. It was the first play I'd done for 10 years. Right. Which was? It, it was called Moonlight and Magnolias. It was on at the Tricycle, which right. is now The Kiln. Isn't the Kiln, it? yeah, yeah. And it really reminded me what I love about theatre. I'd sort of gone off doing plays. And Sean had said to me afterwards, what do you want to do afterwards? Let's work together again. I think sort of dreading me saying, oh, I'd love to play Hamlet. You know? <laughs> and I'd sort of said, well, I've got a couple of ideas. And one of them is me and Jeremy Dyson are sort of talking about this vagina monologues with ghost stories. And he went, oh, that's a good idea. And about a month later, he became artistic director of the Lyric Hammersmith. Right. And he phoned me on the first day. Literally, I think it was his second phone call in the office to say, as he was trying to put his first season together, what's happening with that ghost stories play? So I was like, well, we're writing it-ish. We're talking about it. We're both busy. He's like, can you come in tomorrow, the two of you? So we did. And we formulated that night what we thought the play would be. And we decided it would be an hour and a half, no interval. Straight through. Contemporary. Yeah. And have jumps, scares in it that were as powerful as any modern horror film. And that's what we said to him. He was like, great, we'll commission it. Wow. We'll commission it. We'll do it as a co-production and we'll commission it. So, now that all sounds like a blessing and so easy. And the truth is it is a blessing. And that in terms of getting it commissioned, it was easy. But all of this, to me, it's all, everything's interlinked, which is going back and looking at your work and treating it as a job and always doing the best work you can and always being as good, being as nice to work with as you can. Mm. Again, not kissing arse or not being bullied, but not making waves when you don't need to, no. not not being a dick, not being hard to work with, being professional. And if you are a dick, hold your hands up and go, yeah, yeah. I've been a dick here, yeah. so I need to sort of make recompense for that. So all of those things really count and... So had I have been difficult on Moonlight and Magnolias or whatever, he would never have said, let's work together again. What do God, you want to do no. next? Yeah. You know, so, and equally, and again, it's something I put in the book and it's so true. If you audition for something, and I know this as a di- when I'm directing, the first thing you do, if there's an actor that you've seen and you think, oh, God, they're good, is look down their CV and see if there's anyone on that list you you know or can call and say, what's Craig Parkinson like? 
Don't make that phone call, Andy. <laughs> I, I mean, I wouldn't if I were you. I'd just ask anyone on the street, I'll tell you. <laughs> but it's the first thing. And that, the response to that phone call can make or break whether you get the job. Because yeah. they can either say, oh, absolute dream. It's brilliant. Or they can say, or you can get... Um, he's, Already. He's good. That's it. Already you know. Yeah. yeah. So what does that mean? What, what, what's the caveat there? Um, well, make sure he don't go out for heavy nights. Or um, he's all right short if leash. he's learnt it, or short leash, or yeah. all of those little things that you then weigh up, okay, so do we take that risk? Let's phone someone else and see what they say. And if someone else says, it's tricky. He's you, brilliant, but he's tricky. You then don't you need to make think, that oh, third phone call. We can't risk it. Yeah. So then you're going to go... At the... So all of those things, how you conduct yourself counts. And it really counts, I think, in a really massive way. Um, right from being at drama school, from the way you are right the way through. And again, that's not to say everyone needs to be perfect. No, and everybody changes. Hugely. 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 Hopefully, you know. Yeah. For the better. Yeah. So, anyway, so we wrote the play. Thank God the play was a big hit. Do you think if Sean hadn't have commissioned it then, you it, you would have still had the momentum to carry on writing it? <laughs> That's a really good question. He was brilliant because he forced us to write it. Mm. He forced us to write it because I was what was what I was thinking over one side of my brain. Then when you were talking about it, was when he said, "So what's going on with the ghost stories?" Playing you went, "Well, you know, we're talking about it. We're doing. Are you really? What's going yeah. on with it?" Yeah, he forced us, and yeah. we tried to sort of back out. We tried to wriggle out of it. Did yeah? We did a bit because he after he'd commissioned so he'd it. commissioned it. Yeah, and it, and it was all very okay. And we're going to open it a year today at the lyric. They put the date in the diary. Wow. Anyway, which was for the January, I think. I can't quite remember. And <laughs> we got the collie wobbles. Really? We started. <laughs> Sean calls it talking down. He'll talk you down, you know. So we'd sort of suddenly looked at our diaries and thought, fucking hell, we're really busy, both of us, actually. We've got this in and that in. And maybe we should see if we can get it done in May, get them to push it to May or June. Actually, do you know what? Christmas is a better time to open a ghost story. And the next Let's push year. it to them. And we called him up and said, look, we're just thinking that the timing, we might not have time to do it and maybe we should push it a little bit to, what was the May slot? And he was like, no, 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 no. It's in the diary. It's happening. It's happening. So we're having conversations next week about who we'll do it as a co-production with, but it's happening. So you need to get on it. It'll be fine. Don't worry. Just do it. Well, God bless him for that. Yeah. So we did. I think I can't remember if we talked. I think we talked about it on the last podcast. I can't remember. Ghost stories. Very Touched brief. Very, very okay. briefly, which is why I, I really wanted to discuss so, it this time. So changing it for a film. Well, where was the idea to change it? Because as we've already talked about, this was a theatrical production. Yes. Very, very much so. Yeah. But we knew as we were writing it, or oh, this could be a horror film, 
because it was it was the language of a horror film. And also, where are your influences from? They were yeah, all from horror exactly. films. So we're like, well, this is a film. But then we, we were very clear about that's not what it started as and that's not what we want to do. And there's an immediacy with theatre whereby you can just get it on. You know, and I don't mean at the Lyric or in the West End. I mean, you can just put a plan in a pub. You can hire it and do it and write it and get some work on. There are loads of brilliant scratch nights. You can, you know, there are loads of theatres where you can just think, I'm going to do it. That's not the way with film. I mean, it's different. Of course, you can cut, you can make a film on your phone, you can do all of that stuff. But, you know, to do it at a scale, yeah. it's a process. It's a long process. Anyway. So we had decided, right, we won't make a film of this for five years if it ever happened. We just want it to be a theatre piece. And then we had big... Basically, when the play was on and it was a hit, we had a big American studio want to make it. So we got this phone call and our agents naively sort of said, just go for the meeting. My God, what a learning curve this whole thing was, Craig. Jesus Christ. Oh, go on. So... We went for a meeting with this film company and we were lambs to the slaughter, me and Jeremy, really. They hadn't even seen it. What? They hadn't seen the play. They knew it was a thing. They were going that night. We had this meeting and it was all big talk about what they wanted from it. And we were like, well, you know, we'll see. We'll talk about it. We're not sure. But it was intoxicating, that's for sure. And we left and they made... I think it's called a preemptive offer. Basically, they made an offer. Right. <clears throat> on making it into a film. There and then at the table. I think that day they made okay. it to our agents. Right. But what that means is it's now off the market until you've said no to okay. this offer. Right. But it's not as easy as someone saying, I'll give you a fiver for that. It's massive. It's complicated, it's all lawyers, it's this, it's that. So it was about seven months of to and fro before we got to a place where we were just like, oh, no, actually, I'll tell you the truth, actually, what happened. The last thing was... Remember, we can cut anything out. Oh, it's fine, I don't care. (laughs) So we had this big (laughs) sort of make-or-break conference call with this proper film studio proper hollywood film studio and me and jeremy were in my dressing room at the duke of york's theater and i just sort of said to jess i can't take this seriously i think it's it's all bollocks so i said to him why don't we be naked why don't we just sit back? No, it wasn't a, it wasn't a video conference (laughs) so we would absolutely stark bollock naked (laughs) throughout this whole very serious conference call where we would just keep looking at each other and just, it was the most brilliant thing because it just took, (coughs) it took all the air out of it. Yeah. And just, it, it, it was so ridiculous, the whole thing. And we knew ultimately then what was useful was, and we then had another American studio, sort of independent studio, who were very cool and wanted to do it, but it just didn't work for us because we ended up, we just knew we wanted it to be English. We wanted mm. it to be what our play is, what the DNA of it is. So we turned down all of them, both of them, and then just waited. We had to wait for the rights to come back to us. It's funny, isn't it? Because when you look at the thing and you go, the play's a hit, now they've made a film, what a piece of piss that must be. It's really easy. They're just like like you, someone's come and written you a cheque for a million pounds each. 
you know. My God, it is such hard work. And that thing almost collapsed five times in the pre-production. What an eye-opener as an actor when... Just got to check this because my phone is buzzing away. No, that's okay. What, what uh, an eye-opener as an actor when you've been up for something, think, I haven't heard for ages about that. What's going on? Can I just get a yes or no answer, please? Because the world revolves around yeah. you. Well, you can't. Yeah. Because that was so such a learning curve, is that getting the finance... It was a, it's a house of cards that's built on a fucking quicksand. So every time you think, I think we're all right now. Yeah. So, well, it almost collapsed three or four times. And if Jeremy and I hadn't have always been united, positive, communicative... Try, and again, I'm not saying this in a backpacky, backpacky, <laughs> backpatting way. No. Just in, it's amazing that so often the problem is just communication. You're just sitting in a room and you realise, well, that's not what we meant, or we don't see it like that. Yeah. We see it like this, or okay, well, how can we fix that? How can we make that happen? Because we're so close to this happening that it would be mad for it to collapse now. So what can we do about that? Who can we talk to? How could we help? Mm. What can we? What scenes can we cut? What scenes could we put in? Is there anything we can... You know, that must have happened three times. One absolute, definite, 100% make or break, where we'd gone to the BFI, we'd made a, we'd made a demo, like a 10-minute they gave us money for the... I don't know if I can talk about it. Anyway, fuck it. We made a thing for the BFI. And then they came back and said, no, I'm not giving you the money. We were shocked at the time. We couldn't believe it. Mm. This thing was good. Yeah. Couldn't believe it. So they did us a favour. It happened to a few of my friends. It was a favour. It was an absolute blessing. Because if they'd have given us the money then, the film that we made would never have been as good as the film it was. Because we once we'd got over our how dare they turn us down, idiots... We don't tick their boxes or whatever bullshit you tell yourself. Once you've done all that and gone, I wonder why they turned it down. Should we watch it again and be honest? Let's be really honest with yeah. ourselves, which is another great thing about the collaboration is you can talk. And then you just start being honest and thinking, well, how could we make it better? What could we do? What doesn't work? During all that time, before it was all greenlit and it was all going ahead and the train had left the station... Going back to your friendship, did it, was was there anything that impacted your friendship throughout this? Because Not really. There that's were a couple, incredible. Yeah, there were a couple. Well, because we're doing other things, we're married, we've got kids, we're both in our fifties. I cannot believe I'm saying that. I know, but you're both so invested in this. You are, and but it's harder. I think it's hard. I think it was harder for Soph, my wife, than it was for me because right. they rightly are like, when is is this? Is it going to happen? And Soph's the most brilliantly supportive. Fantastic, you know, but understandably, it's like, apparently it's going to go in April. Right, well, I've been hearing that was supposed to go in December. You can't not, because I was not taking other work. Yeah. So how, you know, we're supposed, how are we going to live if you just keep turning work down because yeah. it may go? I don't know how most directors make a living. It's hard. It's as hard. That's the other learning curve. My God. When we were talking, when we wanted a casting agent to come along, you know, as actors, we think casting agents are these 
omnipresent, all-powerful people who are the gatekeepers who can literally sprinkle fairy dust on us and make our careers. They are like us. We met three or four brilliant, all of them brilliant. We'd have been lucky to have any of them casting agents. But they're like us. They want the job. And they are equally trying to make a living and trying to do work they're proud of. Yeah. And and do interesting scripts. And so they come and meet us auditioning. Now, again, there's always going to be a few of those casting agents who are like those few actors who make a lot of money and work all the time. Mm. But for the most part, you know, and it, that was a really healthy thing for me to understand, was that they, they are struggling like we struggle. You know, well, it's about survival. It really is. And also, you know, they don't want to make their lives doing foreign adverts. They want to get a film script or a Netflix series that they think, oh, my God, there's 180 parts here. And read this, it's brilliant. Yeah. They want to get their teeth into of stuff do, and yeah. find actors that aren't the same old, same old. They're, yeah. they're desperate for that, which is another reason why, as actors, you should, with respect, contact respectfully and nicely casting agents because your CV and photo may just land on the day where they think, actually, we should get him in, that kid. He looks really good. Well, I was just going back to the lad that I mentor, and he was. I was talking to him a few months ago. I said, um, write a letter, write a handwritten letter. Yeah. Do you know how many emails and think I'm just like 10 by 8 things? I bet you any money, loads of them don't get a handwritten letter or a little postcard. Totally. And I spoke to a friend of mine who is in casting, and she went, no, I never get those. Never, not anymore. So that's... I mean, people start doing it now, obviously. Yeah. But it's like, it's a, but, but a great thing to do. Well, well, it is, and I'm always amazed with casting a, you know, it's it it's the same thing with agents, isn't it? People think, you know, I had, I had an actor contact me and say, can I come and talk to you? I didn't know him, but I was like, sure, okay, you know, he's having trouble with the agent or whatever. And he started talking to me, and he was difficult. The guy was difficult. Yeah. And I was like, no wonder you're having problems. Yeah. The way you talk and are talking, and yet in his head he was just like... I So it was fascinating that, you know, when I had to say to him, look, I think that you, some of that is maybe about the way you conduct yourself. Oh, good you're honest with him. Well, totally, because if he said... So I've never met him, I was like, well, I'll... Yeah, let's have a chat, yeah. you know. You, what was his response when you said maybe some of this begins at home? For, you know, I... Th- I didn't. Uh, I honestly, well, I don't know. Sometimes, you know, my kid, you know, my kids will laugh because they always, I think they think I'm more aggressive than I am. I didn't. I don't think I said it in an aggressive way at all. I think I, I was just pragmatic. I doubt it would have done, yeah. And just sort of said, "Look, this is what I'm hearing." And um, I think he was. I don't know what he thought. Was it? Did you feel it was taken on board though? Kind of. Kind of, but. I think the agent relationship thing's so complicated and I mean I absolutely love my agent. I've been with them twenty six years. Wow. And that's kind of unheard of nowadays the people have been with their agents for so long. Maybe. I mean I think that I'm with you know, I think she's with a lot a lot of her clients have been with her a long time. Says a lot, doesn't it? 
Yeah. And I think that... But one of the reasons, maybe, is that we've always been really honest. Which is key. With each other. And even when I was... It's not like... It's been a long journey together of trying to sort out what work to do. Yeah. Well, it's a business relationship. Yeah. Uh, So I've always kind of been open about what work I've, I've wanted to do or not, which is why I've always had other jobs that I've done because I've sort of thought, well, I can... I'll be able to pay for them, look after them the family if I do that instead of that acting job I don't want to do. Mm. But I think that communicating properly with your agent is a massive, massive thing. Massive thing. And again, I hear actors talk about us and them and, you know, all of that. And I I think it's so... It's crystal clear to me that, that, you know... And again, it's that actor thing of... So much now is about, or feels that it's about, young actors cracking a Netflix job now. And if they haven't got it, game within over. six months, game over. Yeah. And, I, and I hear a lot of, you know, a lot of new agents or bigger agents that kind of take young actors on and if they haven't got it, they drop them. It's all quite sort of LA, that. And I, I, I think that... Again, it's the same thing, which is it's a long... It's a marathon. The job is a marathon. And ideally, you and your agent are going to go on that journey together. If the relationship is strong enough. Yeah, but part and parcel of making the relationship strong is to both understand that. And be honest. And be honest about it. And, uh, you know, we're going to build on... You know, it's building bit by bit by bit by bit. You know, Andy, I want to end by going back to where... We were talking about ghost stories because it's really important to me. Yeah. Which is what I really wanted to talk about so much with you tonight. And it's... Was it always your intention to direct? 100%. The film? Yes. 100%. So that was the big thing that came out of the negotiations with Americans was there was a very clear moment where Jeremy and I... This was one of those difficult conversations when you talk about a collaboration. Mm. Because our Jeremy's remit and my remits are different because Jeremy's a, a full-time professional writer, mm. whereas I am full-time professional actor, you know, and I also write and also, you know. So the opportunity that was afforded to Jeremy if our screen, if our film was made in Hollywood, in inverted commas, was a big step forward for him in a way that didn't matter to me, in yeah. a way that, you know, if it was like me being offered a lead in a massive movie would matter to me in a way it doesn't to Jeremy. Mm. You know, you've got different... And we'd always been very honest about those things. And we were, we were actually in Toronto when Ghost Stories was being put on there. And we'd got a call from the sort of, indie film company who were trying to do it and they'd said that one of their directors who's a brilliant horror director one of the biggest horror directors in the world really was keen to do it and and I remember Jeremy and I having to have this difficult conversation where I sort of was like I don't want him to direct our thing. 
just so we can get it made in America. I don't yeah. want it made in, you know. And we, neither of us really wanted it made in America, but we had to drill into it and talk about it. And I was like, it's our thing. We've written it. We've taken the risks. If the film's going to be shit, I'd rather we made it and it was shit. We can live with that. Yeah. I don't want to go in to see someone else's version of a, a script that we have written and think they have fucked that up or they've changed that and that. That was so key to what we wanted it to be. I want, you know, it's for us to do that. Because it'll never be your vision. Never be our vision. No. And it's for us... Um, that, I, I'm hoping that's that's what that conversation was. If Jez listens to this, it might be... No, it wasn't like that at all, but that's my memory of it. Right. And we both sort of felt the same way. It was very... It, was, it, it suddenly felt very clear then. Mm. So then when we sent it to the script, the first draft of it. And it took us 18 months to write that script. Right. Of Because, um, you know, Ghost Stories is, is a clockwork piece of the, the play. And the massive central part of it, which I'm not giving anything away by saying this, which is a lecture, a man lecturing, you can't do on camera. It's no. completely redundant. So that meant you had to just undo the whole thing and find a way of putting it back together again. And it was really, really hard because um, you had to really kill your darlings, things that really worked you just couldn't do. And also, as we've said, it was a theatre piece. Yeah. It wasn't a, Absolutely. a screenplay. So once we'd done that and then we decided we were going to send it out to film companies, we then looked at, well, who do we want to send it to? You know, And top of that list was Warp Films because of their body of work with... Oh, Dead Man Shoot, all of Shane Meadows stuff. You know, just brilliant. Chris Morris. Chris Morris. I did a um, a thing called Dead Set, which was directed by Jan Demange, who made seventy one. Yeah. He just he was just in post production with them, and again, rather like as an actor, when a director phones an actor, I'd gone to Jan and said, "What are they like to work with?" And he was loved them. Just they will support your vision one hundred percent. Absolutely. Yeah. And I just thought, well, that's what you wanted to hear. So we sent it to them and they loved it. Um, and then we went to see them. And then, then it's about... But, but again, it's, you're learning all the time because then you think, oh, my God, Warp Films loves us. Brilliant. They're going to write us a cheque now for <laughs> £5 million and we'll get the film made. You know, it's not like that at all. It's, they then got to go and try and raise the money. Mm. And But, sorry, to answer your question, when that script went out, it was written by us, to be directed by us, with me playing Goodman. That was Those three things were non-negotiable. And we, we were like, we'd rather not make the film, because we've, we've turned those things down, those big American offers. Yeah. So we know we're in a strong place, which is emotionally strong, not financially strong. Or, but it was just like, we, we'd rather not make it than make it our way. But then that brings with it other things. If I'm going to be the lead in the film, well, I'm not box office. I mean, you know, there's, I've got a small following or a small cult following, but, you know, that's one matinee on a Wednesday afternoon. That's that taken care of, <laughs> you know. So if you want to open a film internationally, well, that then means who else are you getting in it? Who's yeah. an international name? Yeah. So then you start looking at, and you don't want to crowbar someone in who's not right for it, so then you start having these conversations about who could possibly be in your film that, you know, thank God 
when we'd stumbled on the idea of Martin Freeman and we sent it, sent the script to his agent. I'd worked with Martin. I'd done a, a, a film with him, but we weren't, you know, we were met in, in acquaintances. Mm. I, mean, I hesitated to say mates then. We weren't. We were acquaintances and yeah. our paths had crossed and I had huge respect for him. So we sent it to his agent and did it officially. Didn't sort of go the mates route or anything. And he loved it and signed on. Well, then suddenly that made things a bit easier. Yeah. But it was still, even within that, it still almost collapsed. Really? Yeah, of course. Because you're then dealing with, you know, international financiers and suddenly oh, the world's a bit bumpy. And yeah. But in talking about all of that, I wouldn't have it any other way. Well, I was going to say... Absolutely love the journey of it. Throughout such bumpy terrain of the journey, is it something you would embark on again? Oh, my God. In a heartbeat. Absolutely. You know, we've just just finished the... Our, I hesitate to say our first draft, but, you know, what will become our first draft of right. our next film? You know, but, you know, who knows if it'll ever get made or... We've written what we love, like we did with ghost stories, but, you know, we'll see. Who knows? But I can't wait to do it again. Can't wait to. It, it, I honestly think being in the film and direct... Uh, there was another amazing... Fuck, I'm rambling a bit. I'm sorry. But another massive lesson that I learned on ghost stories was the d- directing is all-encompassing. From the minute you open your eyes, from the minute you close your eyes, it's all about either the pre-production or the shooting days or that you, you have got literally... 10,000 decisions a day that you are making and 4,000 compromises Mm. a day and problems that you're solving and thinking, okay, we can't do that, we'll do this, we'll do that. What's happening on that thing that... I forgot about the acting in a brilliant way. I'd come to do these scenes, you know, and it was like, oh, Christ, okay, right, I'm going to go get changed, uh, you know, and the first to be like, we need you. Okay, good, all right, I'll do that. And then, you know, because Jez and I were both directing... And the acting became effortless, became the easiest thing, became the thing that I wasn't angsted about. I thought you were going to say secondary then. No, no, not at all. But that was what amazed me, was it felt liberating that normally I'm like, what? not worrying, but I'm, I'm my head's in it. Yeah. And I'm in it. Naturally. And I'm like wanting to get those decisions to be right as if that's possible wanting to make it land wanting to make it count wanting to not do the make obvious choices so thinking 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 writing scribbling scribbling all the time i mean i guess because i'd done the character for 13 months in the west end i sort of it was in my bones but even so this was a very different journey yeah very different so we'd get to do these scenes and it'd be like i just fly through them great, okay, let's have a look at the monitor. And then he sort of heads into a monitor thing. Or I'd ask Jez and Jez would be like, good, let's do one more. And Jez would give me notes like like he would anyone else. And that was a massive thing, suddenly realising, holy shit, that's what a place to try and achieve. What a place to try and get to is it not being, but look at the moment, I'm filming something and I'm writing something. And the writing's really, really hard, really, really hard at the moment, really in the trenches, and it's um, 
you know, the show opens in five weeks. There's a massive deadline looming. Yeah. Going and filming feels like I'm on holiday. Right. And it's big stuff I'm filming. And it's like... It's bliss. And it should always be like that, I think, you know. Because it's it's just... It's... Even if it... Any, any acting, any acting for me, whether it was doing my foreign adverts, doing whatever it is, do, doing TIE tours when I started. It's just a joy to think, fucking hell, I'm doing it. I'm actually getting paid to do this. Or badly, getting paid <laughs> badly a lot of the time. But nevertheless, this is what I've dreamt of doing. Oh, God. So, I, I, I honestly... I really miss it when I'm not doing it and I can't bear it if people moan when they are doing it because I know that it, when I'm not doing it, I just want to do it. Yeah. And there are, you know, thousands of people who listen to your podcast who aren't, who, who are struggling as we all struggle. And I just think about them <laughs> mm. And us, when we're struggling, it's not. I don't mean that. Aren't we the lucky ones? We are the lucky ones because we do work. But that, it does. It comes at a price, and you're working all. You know, if you're, it's always hard. I can't. So I cannot bear hearing the negativity about it. And again, that's not to say. Look, my books are pragmatic, and I'm very honest about where what I think the struggles are. And that's not yeah. to say there aren't struggles. There are. It's really hard. But when you're doing it, that's the elixir. That's the thing. So, Andy Nyman, thank you <laughs> so so much for coming back on. I hope it's all right. I'm full of imposter syndrome, as I said. Oh, I've done I, a well, I was going to say, I hope that sort of chipped away because I've uh, during the wee break. I was saying to Griff, I went, it's so ironic that I've always been slightly cautious and nervous about ever talking about work in depth. And I've really loved this. Oh, I've thanks. really loved this conversation. Plus, I love talking to you anyway, and it's been ages, so yeah. it's an absolute treat. Should we go and have a spag bowl? Come on, let's Griff, bowl of spag bowl? On it. Yeah. Thanks, Andy. A pleasure. Thanks for asking me. <laughs> And another episode is done. And it's a joy to spend even more time with Andy. And honestly, I don't think I know anybody who is constantly excited and fascinated and considers himself very, very lucky doing what he does more than Andy. So, you know, I just think there's a little bit of something that we can all take away from that conversation. And after we stopped recording, uh, we went downstairs and Andy cooked a lovely vegetable spaghetti bolognese. And myself and Griff and Andy and his wife, so sat around eating and nattering a little bit more. So Andy, thank you so much for inviting us into your home and cooking for us. That doesn't happen all the time. Just a little side note, if you're a, a, an upcoming guest, and we come round to your house. Well, you know, we're not averse to, to presents or 
um, being cooked for. Those things are very nice. It, you know, it's not a deal breaker, but it, it would be nice. Um, also, thanks so much for all your messages for 114 for last week's episode with Stephen Kavuma. Um, if you haven't listened to it, for whatever reason, you know, some people go, oh, well, I don't really know who that person is, so I'm not going to listen. I urge you to listen. You know these things happen. We get messages all the time going, oh, well, I didn't know such and such a person, or I knew very, very little about them, but I'm so pleased I listened to that conversation. Um, you know, I had a message over in America from past podcast guest and friend of the podcast, Jonas Policewoman, and she listened to that uh, in the morning when she got up in America and she just cried. She said it was a wonderful episode. So if that isn't an endorsement, then I don't know what is. Um, a couple of dates for you. Saturday the 28th of March, I'm going to be in Manchester for the Not Quite Light Festival and we have three guests on the podcast and I'll tell you more about that hopefully next week. We're just finalising some bookings. Then, the day after, we are at the Birmingham Podcast Festival. We are closing on the Sunday night. There's a big lorry going past my window. So, yeah, we are closing at... We're on stage 8 o'clock in Birmingham on the 29th of March. And hopefully, you'll already know who the guest is. Because at the time that I'm recording this, we're just uh, dotting the I's and crossing the T's with that. So if you haven't got your tickets yet, go to Birmingham Podcast Festival, give that a Google. Not quite like festival, give that a Google and come and see us there. Um, what else have we got to tell you? Oh, look, it's a little thing. You might have noticed over the past couple of weeks, there have been some... A digital adverts inserted uh, before the main body of the conversation and after. Um, we don't really know what they are, but we've joined Acast and they're great and we're trying to keep this podcast free to you as possible. But also we do rely on your generous donations and joining us on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash the two shot podcast. Go there, see what you can do, you know, a quid, a couple of quid a month. It's not loads, but if you can afford it, it means a great deal to us. And we, some people were asking, have we got any more badges? We do have some more badges. So if you donate $5 a month or more, a lovely shiny badge will be coming your way. And another date for your diary. I want you to keep the first week of May free. Because the first week of May, the Two Shot Podcast is coming to a city near you. More about that next week. Until then, thank you so, so much for downloading. And look, should we do it all again? Yeah, 116 next week. So, until then, I've been Craig Parkinson, he's been producer Griff, and this has been the Two Shot Podcast. You take care. Two Shot Podcast is presented by me, Craig Parkinson, recorded and produced by Thomas Griffin for Splicing Block. Our music, our brilliant music, is courtesy of Then Thickens. Cheers. <laughs> <laughs>